Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from the QI offices in Covent Garden. My name is Dan Schreiber. I'm sitting here with Anna Chizinski, James Harkin, and Andy Murray. Once again, we have gathered around the microphone with our four favorite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with you, Chizinski. Uh, yeah, my fact is that for 200 years after tomatoes made it to England, they were grown almost entirely for ornamental reasons. Because right? they didn't want to eat them? Because, uh, because they, they were thought... just waiting for them to be ripe. It's <laughs> not ready. It's still red. Wait for it to be green. <laughs> I think were they yellow. I think the first tomatoes that were brought over were yellow, and that's why they're called pomodore in um, Italian, I think. Uh, it's like yellow apples or something. Um, anyway, yeah, people thought they were poisonous. And this was for... Well, there are a number of explanations for why people thought that. I think the most likely one is that they were botanically identified as being belonging to the nightshade family. And people knew that other members of the nightshade family, deadly nightshade, were poisonous. So they were botanically advanced enough to work out what family tomatoes belonged to, but not botanically advanced enough to say... These things are obviously harmless. You can eat them. So there's another theory that they were actually poisoning people, isn't there? And the idea behind that is that um, they had pewter plates which contains lead and the um, tomatoes have acid in them and the acid would release the lead out of the pewter plates and would give people lead poisoning. So that was one theory. Yes. Although I think pewter plates mainly belong to wealthy people. But I re- yeah. yeah, I reckon if they thought they were part of the nightshade family, then maybe a few rich people got ill from that. Yeah. That would have meant. Mm. Can I can I say my favorite theory? Oh, Go yeah. on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this was this was a big one during the day. They thought someone noticed. I believe it was Ralph Waldo Emerson. In fact, noticed that there was a worm that was going into his tomato, and he thought that it was the worm that was poisonous. That it was poisoning uh, yeah. the actual uh, tomato. <laughs> yeah. And so it was um, a green tomato worm, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And it's just great because a bit of hysteria was created out of people thinking that it was this thing. There's uh, someone who described it as a poisonous as a rattlesnake they were saying you know stay away from this thing uh and there's a wonderful quote dr fuller said that (laughs) there is a new enemy to human existence (laughs) (laughs) and then he said that if you if you were bitten uh that you would die and then someone else pointed out that wouldn't hurt a flea so it wasn't actually as dangerous but for a while they thought it was this worm which is pretty cool yeah i think tomatoes were just starting to get over their bad reputation and suddenly these worms rocked up (laughs) and there was such hysteria there's this story that's told that's so brilliant and there's no first-hand record of it but it was reported in newspapers in the 19th century and it's that it was in salem it was at the old county courthouse in salem it was 1820 and this guy called colonel johnson had decided it was getting ridiculous that everyone thought tomatoes were poisonous and he was going to prove to people that they weren't and so he stood on the steps of salem courthouse and he ate this whole bowl of tomatoes in front of this huge crowd. <laughs> and the witness reports, apparently, according to newspapers that reported it later, said that women were screaming and fainting as they watched <laughs> him do what they thought was suicide in public. Do you know what the Latin name for tomatoes is? It's lycopersicon, which means wolf peach. How <laughs> cool is that? Cool. Yeah. Why? Do we know why? No. Oh. Well, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's because when they go mouldy, they get that grey fur. Yes, and they also start hunting in packs. And a few of them can bring down a fully grown moose. It's actually no wonder people were so afraid of them for so long. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there was the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes movie, wasn't there? There was that factual documentary, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Return of the Killer Tomatoes was George Clooney's first movie. Or first movie. He'd been in a few things before, but that was his first main break. Wow. Well done, George. And the first uh, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, um, there was a helicopter crash. 
uh, which is in there at the start, and it was a real crash. And um, it was a rented helicopter, and it went down. Fortunately, no one was killed, um, but the crash cost them $60,000, which used up more of the budget than all other aspects of the film combined. Wow. Whoa. At least they got the footage. <laughs> Did you guys know that George Clooney, 10 years, exactly 10 years before he started being the star of ER, was the star of a hospital drama called ER? With dots after the E and the R. Really? Yeah. What? Yeah. It does kind of feel like there was um, some kind of admin mix-up, doesn't it? It really and they've does. Just got the cast list and got the wrong cast list. The old one. It's like. Uh, yeah. Yeah. If someone Robert De Niro was meant to get the part in yeah. the R. I have a news story which I also wanted to share with you. Yeah. Um, this is from 2013 from the BBC. A man caught with a prostitute in his car told police she was there to show him where to buy tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> is that a euphemism? This is, a, <laughs> this is in the West Midlands. and um, I could have told him where to get tomatoes in the West Midlands. <laughs> where? There's a nice big Morrison's in Wolverhampton. <laughs> yep. Well, he could have saved 20 quid and a £400 fine from Walsall Magistrates Court. Ah, uh, Walsall, yeah, I don't know that as well. Police reaction was amazing. PC, uh, one of the police from Walsall Police said... Um, I've heard some excuses before, but in the ten years I've been a police officer, I've never heard a curb crawler covering up his crimes by claiming to be buying tomatoes. Our officers in the court saw through his lies. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Scooby. That's another yeah. crime solved. Um, I've, uh, over the last few years, developed a new taste for tomato juice on planes. It is supposed to taste better. Yeah. Uh, than, like Other things that you would try on the aeroplanes would taste worse, but actually tomato juice like Bloody Marys and stuff are supposed to be still okay. Yeah, well, why is that? Well, your taste buds um, obviously go down. So tomato juice, because of the thickness, kind of... And for, uh, other reasons, I'm sure, retains the full taste. Okay. But they did a massive test of it in a simulation where they had passengers come on to a simulated <laughs> flight. <laughs> that wouldn't, that they... wouldn't work, really, because surely it's the altitude that makes a difference. Yes, exactly. So actually, the uh, whole study brought no conclusive results. <laughs> <laughs> but, they, but the reasonings, they asked all the passengers, why did you go for it? And one of the main results, which is exactly what I did, is that you see the person ahead of you, or two people ahead of you going, uh, tomato juice, and you go, oh, I might have a tomato juice. And that was genuinely one of the main results that they got Hang from on, the thing. Hang on, so they think that it just happens that the people in the front row tend to order tomato juice. Someone orders it, and it spills down. Well, surely we yeah, have to work out why that first person always orders tomato juice. Because they were at the back of a previous flight where yeah. someone offered them tomato <laughs> so juice. So one person once happened to order yeah. tomato juice, and since then it's been a constant domino. But hang on, exactly. sometimes the trolley comes from behind you on a plane. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're talking about an economy. Right. <laughs> I didn't know they had trolleys back then. <laughs> um, another theory about the tomato juice thing is that I can't believe this, but is that the noise of the plane affects how you perceive flavour. Wow. <laughs> But you've genuinely experienced the tomato juice thing. On planes, it's my main topic of conversation. If there's someone I don't know next to me, I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, what's up with the tomato <laughs> juice order? And they're going, excuse me, are there any spare seats? <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind going back to economy. <laughs> Tomatoes. Um, are they a fruit or a vegetable? They are a fruit. Uh, they are, so botanically they are a fruit, but legally ah. they are a vegetable. Um, and that was a precedent set in 1887 because some guy called John Nix was trying to import a bunch of tomatoes and he was saying these are botanically a fruit and so I shouldn't have to pay the vegetable tariff on them because there wasn't the same tariff for fruits and uh, the courts decided that they wanted him to pay that tariff so they declared that tomatoes were a vegetable and he had to pay up and 
That's it. The judge said, in the common language of the people, whether sellers or consumers of provisions, all these are vegetable which are grown in kitchen gardens and which, whether eaten cold or raw, are, like potatoes, carrots, parsnips, turnips, beets, cauliflower, (laughs) (laughs) cabbage, celery and lettuce, usually served at dinner. In, with, or after the soup, fish, or meats, which constitute the principal part of the repast, and not like fruits generally as a dessert. I... And I must admit, I didn't realise how long that was going to be. <laughs> I can't help thinking that guy got turned down in his job as a chef and went yeah. on. So, um, other things that were not used uh, for eating originally: um, the Romans uh, didn't really eat butter. They did have it, but they didn't really eat it. What did they do with it? They would rub it on themselves ah. uh, if they had a burn, for instance. <laughs> uh, they would use it for medical reasons. Um, the Germans had it, and they did kind of eat it more, um, but they didn't eat it all the time. They used it for hairdressing. Uh, and um, Herodotus says that the Thracians ate it, but the Greeks thought that they were weird for eating it. So, like, back in the <laughs> olden days, hardly anyone ate, ate butter. Was it, wow. Did it happen when the, the first Roman who got a burn on his lips <laughs> put it on there? When this is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> or when they burnt their toast, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, time for fact number two, and that's my fact. My fact this week is that NASA is planning on giving the moon a moon, which is... Exciting. <laughs> Explain yourself. Okay, so so basically, NASA is going to. It's quite an ambitious idea, and in theory, yeah, no kidding. But but they are they are going for it. So it's not you know, it is NASA. It's not like some college kids. They they've got it planned. For is it s- going to be a smaller moon than the current size moon? Or yes, okay. yeah, yeah. So the idea is that in 2020, they're going to launch a probe that's going to go to a passing asteroid. They're going to land on the asteroid and lasso around it or using a kind of knapsack bag of a sort of gigantic scale, take a boulder off it, then head back to our moon and then leave that boulder at a point where it can orbit the moon and then they can mine the asteroid for everything, learn more about what asteroids are made up of and so on. It's hugely ambitious, but it's... It's in the slot. Yeah. So I don't think moons can really have moons. Um, well, our moon can't really. It could have one for a short amount of time, but eventually the orbit would decay. And that's because the um, movement of the Earth and the movement of the sun yeah. would kind of give tidal forces that would kind of decay the orbit. And how, how long do you think they could have it for? I think they could have it for a fair amount of time, a good few years, but it wouldn't last forever. That's quite cool, though. We're going to live in a period where the moon has an orbiting moon. But it is weird. Like, if you look at NASA's schedule for you know, its <laughs> upcoming seasons, um, it does have a few planned projects that you just go, have I read an April Fool's page? And yeah. I checked the date this time, and yeah. I haven't. Because <laughs> uh, they're, they're doing the planning of going to Venus with these balloons that are going to sit and kind of create a little balloon city that they can do observations from. It's really weird. They're working on a city made out of huge balloons in the clouds of Venus, which will allow astronauts to explore the planet without venturing onto the hostile surface. That's from a science website. (laughs) It's amazing. Yeah. I read another one from 2020. Um, This is a mission called the Asteroid Impact Mission, and they're going to send a probe up to an asteroid called Didymus. And the asteroid Didymus has a moon called Diddy Moon. (laughs) (laughs) Just like those names. Yeah. (laughs) The naming conventions are great, and they officially encourage you not to name them after your pets. 
<laughs> but I don't know how strictly the rules are enforced, basically. Are we talking about asteroids? Yes. Yeah. Asteroids and actually lots of, lots of planetary bodies. But they um, instituted the rule relatively recently. But the, the first one that came to their attention, which they didn't like, was a guy who named an asteroid Spock. Or he named it uh. Mr. Spock. But it wasn't after Mr. Spock. It was after his cat, who was called Mr. Spock. <laughs> Presumably the cat was called Mr. Spock after Mr. Spock. Yes, but it was, the asteroid was technically being named after a cat. That's so good. And in the, ni- in the 19th century, people would name them after their mistresses and racy things like that. And they said, yeah, we don't want that either. <laughs> well, my mistress was called Mr. Spock. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I called her anyway. <laughs> Um, just like with, with the idea of names being odd, this, check out the name for this Venus one. It's called the High Altitude Venus Operational Concept. And it's not a very good name, but it actually breaks down into Havoc. Uh, is yeah. that what you want to be naming a serious NASA mission? Exactly. <laughs> is that the balloon one? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a proposal stage at the moment, but it is being proposed by NASA to NASA. They know, well, surely NASA's going to accept it. <laughs> Guys, I think this is a brilliant idea. Well, thank you, NASA. No problem, NASA. <laughs> um, just the idea of naming something Havoc, though. Yes, we're doing our central high-altitude operational system, the Project Chaos. Yeah. Or Mayhem. <laughs> or Certain Death. <laughs> I found something really nice about just speaking of asteroids and things orbiting each other. Yep. So um, you all know that Pluto was downgraded from being a planet in 2006 to being a, a dwarf planet. A dwarf planet. The decision could have gone another way because the International Astronomical Union met up. And according to a draft definition of planets, its moon, uh, Charon, or Charon, could have been upgraded to being a planet. So then you Sharon would have had... is just a pretentious Sharon, isn't it? Let's be honest. Sorry, yeah. it's Moon Sharon. It's Moon Sharon. Sharon yeah. is someone's named after their mistress, haven't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Pluto, presumably, after their pet. <laughs> it must have been, that must have been a good day's work. <laughs> the guys will never work it out. Um, but yeah, it would, there would have been a binary pair of planets because they orbit a centre of gravity which is outside both of them. It's a point of space yeah. between the two of them. So they're both constantly and you're orbiting that point. There's a great moon that I saw called Mimaz, okay. and it looks exactly like the Death Star <laughs> from Star Wars. It looks exactly like it. It's so cool. Yeah. Or it looks like a like a 3D squeezable boob. That's the other thing it looks like. <laughs> aren't, sorry, aren't boobs just 3D squeezable boobs? Yeah, no, no. I, I... <laughs> Normally you have to specify if a boob is 2D or not squeezable. <laughs> Um, NASA is looking, so it's looking to employ people, I suppose. It's looking for people who are willing to stay in bed for 70 days. And it'll pay them $18,000. But yeah, this is to see what effects long periods of having to stay still, like you often would have to in a spaceship or something, has on the body and has on a loss of muscle and bone and cardiovascular function. Like hypersleep? It's like hypersleep, (sighs) except you'd be awake and bored, but earning good money. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, that's it's a new thing called Terranauts, where you you can have a whole career at NASA as an Earth astronaut, a Terranaut. So you just hang here and you do all the things that they're prepping astronauts to do, including laying in bed. I can just see the husband at a party going, I'm an astronaut, and the wife next to him going, you're, you're an Earth astronaut. Terranaut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I looked up a list of things that are on the moon Yeah. Okay. that we have left there. Okay. Because lots of things have crashed into there over the years. It's yeah. a huge amount. It's about the weight of a blue whale. So or golf something. balls is famously up there. Golf balls. There's also a javelin. Is there? Yeah. Ah. When Alan Shepard made his golf shot, uh, his colleague through a it was an improvised javelin it was apparently a staff from a solar wind experiment but he threw it as a javelin and I have a theory that it might be the longest javelin throw ever 
was right. made on the moon. I, when there How far did it go? Well, there isn't data, but... Well, the Shepherd's world record of javelins probably just over 100 metres, probably about 106 metres, something like that. Yeah. But you do need data, Andy. I don't, like, with world records, the way it works. Is, I mean, you have to provide an actual number <laughs> rather what? than saying, I reckon. <laughs> it's just my pet theory. I can't prove it, but I do believe it. Also on the moon, there are, they call them defecation collection devices. And there are yeah. five of those. And there that are also... is a jazzed out word for a toilet attendant, isn't it? But, is there yeah. a toilet attendant? <laughs> Buzz Aldrin on the way back, he's like, oh, God, has anyone got two quid? I can leave this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> That's the terrible thing. They live on tips, and there's very little to come by on the moon. Um, and there are ten urine bags, which are divided into urine collection assembly small and urine collection assembly large. And there are also six bags, which are just called emesis, which actually means vomit. Yeah. But they were too polite to say... Vomit bags. Wow. Yeah. I read the other day that um, Buzz Aldrin actually brought a book to the moon. Because <laughs> <Which I, laughs> he, he got bored? Exactly. <laughs> he well, brought... he's going to be sat on the toilet. He's going to do something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he brought a book to the moon. It what, was a, what was the book? It was a biography of a um, pioneer of rockets. So someone who was building rockets, and I can't oh. remember his name, but yeah. Um, speaking of emesis in space, they've been NASA has been developing ways of getting alcohol into space, or uh, <laughs> tentatively like smuggling it up. At the moment, you you're not allowed. Um, yeah, well, at the moment, you're not allowed alcohol in. I think space. the Russians take it up, don't they? Yes, uh, they, do they? Secretly, they were bringing up vodka. Yeah. Um, the weird thing is, they only actually took vodka up because it went so well with the tomato juice, <laughs> which just tastes so much better in space. It was uh, John Glenn said, oh, "I've had tomato juice, and everyone's copied him ever since." Um, um, yeah, sorry, go on. Yeah, so sorry, they've developed like a powdered sherry. NASA um, tried out, <laughs> and they decided to test this out by recreating a zero-gravity test and putting people in the test flight. And as soon as the astronauts who were in this test flight smelt the sherry, they all vomited. So they yeah. haven't perfected it yet. I actually think that the Australians have developed a beer to take to space. And so have far they? as I know, it's the only contribution of space that the Aussies <laughs> have made. The Italians are taking an espresso machine up, aren't they? Oh, yeah. uh, and the South Koreans uh, came up with their space kimchi. Oh, yeah. So, like, a lot of different countries, like, do their specialism. And mm. I guess Australia's is beer. Yeah. Mm. America has SpaceX. Australia has 4X. <laughs> uh, could I just stop you there for a second? Uh, I wanted to tell you that today's instalment of No Such Thing as a Fish was produced with the help of Squarespace, which is the award-winning website builder that makes it easy to tell your story to the world. It's got beautiful templates, it's got 24-7 support and e-commerce. Give your story a voice at squarespace.com and use the offer code FISH to save 10% off your order. Back to the podcast. Okay, time for fact number three, Andrew Hunter-Murray. My fact is that the man who played Sherlock Holmes spent the First World War dressed as a tree. <laughs> Which man? What? Exactly. Benedict Cumberbatch? No, not... Benedict Cumberbatch was not, as far as I know, intimately involved in the First World War. Oh, you're saying he's a coward? Yes. <laughs> Draft dodger. And I can say that all I like, because I know that he won't fight me over it. Um... <laughs> This was Basil Rathbone, who oh, yeah. was one of the first people to become extremely famous playing Sherlock Holmes, who played him in a lot of films. You know. Yeah, he's kind of he's one of those guys who I know about, and I remember his face, but until his name is said out loud, if you just said, name the Sherlock Holmes guy, I wouldn't be able to name him. But yeah, he, did, yeah. he did like 16 movies, yeah, 200 really radio famous. plays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was also in the First World War. This is playing World War. a tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
he was fought on the on the Western Front, and his brother was killed in 1918. And he did these incredibly dangerous patrols, where during daylight he and other men would basically camouflage themselves as trees and walk very, very slowly or crawl towards the German trenches. Oh. If you're crawling, are you going as a tree that's fallen down, I guess? Uh, yeah, I suppose so, yeah. <laughs> it's such an interesting concept, the idea of the tree being a, um, a, a spying mechanism for war. Yeah, Because yeah. okay. this did happen. The Germans built a 25-foot-tall tree out of metal. They cut down a real tree, put up a fake tree, put a man in it, and later on the British overtook the same area and they didn't notice for seven months that the tree was not real. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, you wouldn't really? unless you went up inside it. Yeah. I mean, they were designed, they were photographed and sketched by like, botanical experts, weren't they? So that then they'd, bring, they'd go and photograph the correct tree and then they'd bring the sketches and photographs back to base and they'd be designed to look exactly like the tree that they'd replaced. In the autumn, did you have to kind of drop your fake leaves, do you think? <laughs> yeah. yeah. You would have to, wouldn't you? You would have to. Well, you'd have to have someone climb up and paint them painstakingly brown <laughs> over a period of weeks. And then remove them one by one <laughs> to seem natural. But these, so these are two different types of tree disguise we're talking yes. about, right? So the, these trees we're talking about were more common, I think, which were trees that you'd put snipers or like observational posts up inside, yeah. whereas Basil Rathbun, I think, was a moving tree. Dressed as a so tree, really, yeah. So really, was he? He was just a one... He was a tiny tree yeah. like like there's a charlie Ch famous charlie chaplin movie where he's dressed as a tree and he hits soldiers as they come by um he was i think he was charlie chaplin's mentor so maybe that's where charlie chaplin got the idea oh, really? so you're saying charlie chaplin dressed as a tree in one of his films yeah he did it's a very famous one wow he was very laconic about it he just said uh, we brought back an awful lot of information and a few prisoners too that was it he did a, a few of these patrols he didn't spend the whole war dressed as a tree i imagine being captured by a tree <laughs> yeah <laughs> so he as I think Dan said he sort of volunteered to do this because his brother had died and I think it seems like maybe he lost respect for his own life. He was devastated at his brother's death. But he had or thought he had a premonition of his brother's death because he wrote in his journal one night that he'd woken up at one o'clock in the morning. It was June the 4th, 1918. And suddenly he woke up in bed and thought of his brother and started crying and he didn't know why. And then oh, he later really? found out that exactly that time. Um, was when his brother had been really? killed. Blimey. He wrote a fantastic letter to his family. Um, if I read it, I'll read a little bit of it to you. Um, uh, it's, Dear all, um, B's letter arrived this morning, along with some other things, uh, and a parcel from Aunt Elfrida, which looked very promising, but proved to contain nothing but woolen underwear of such gigantic proportions I am at a loss for words. <laughs> we have managed to fit three men inside a single pair. I wonder if this is the intention. You must inquire and discover if Auntie E made them herself. I think they will make excellent tents. Do not tell her that. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit of nicer. So these these huge giant tree structures, um, they actually had almost, I guess, like foxholes that you would enter them through. You'd go oh, underneath right. them and, and yeah, and go into them. They were really tall. They were very, very tall trees. Um, I really like, just on a bit of nominative determinism, uh, that one of the guys who sketched one of the trees that's held in the Imperial War Museum, uh, his name was Leon Underwood. Oh, that's oh, isn't that great? Wow. Underwood. Yeah. That's yeah. fantastic. And Basil Rathbone's second wife was called Branch. That was her, that was her surname. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, so you get fake trees around these days, um, which are mobile phone masts, don't you? Have you oh, seen these? Oh, really? No. Right. Um, so in, probably in the 90s or something, they built a load of mobile phone masts um, around the UK. And to make them look better, they decided to disguise them as trees. Uh, but what they had to do at the same time was build other trees around them so it made it look more like a little copse or a forest <laughs> or whatever. Now, the problem is, what they didn't realize is that the mobile masts that looked like trees, of course, didn't grow. 
but the trees did grow. And so now you have loads and loads of masts with just trees all around them and you can't get a signal out of them. (laughs) And apparently there's about 10,000 masts in the UK around with trees completely around them that you can hardly get any signal out of. That's amazing. In 2007, a man tried to rob a bank in New Hampshire uh, dressed as a tree. (laughs) The article about this said that it was despite the lack of other trees with which to blend in. (laughs) He was in a bank. He was in a branch. Oh, nice. And it was on Elm Street as well, the, the branch of the bank. Oh Perfect. God, nice. The police later found someone who recognised him from CCTV. Right. Do you think that there might be CCTV footage of, say, half an hour before the actual robbery of him in a fancy dress shop going, do you have any balaclavas? <laughs> and the guy going, sorry, we're all out, mate. We do have a tree costume. <laughs> oh, damn it, all right. Yeah. yeah, if you're going to rob a bank, dress up as something that you'd find in a bank, like a person. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the smartest thing. Or a biro on the oh, little stand, because then you can yes. get really close to the counter without anyone noticing. But then yeah. you're chained to the counter oh, forever. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, don't go too method on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Rathbone, he was um, the archetypal... Um, Sherlock Holmes. Yes. And he was also often a villain in other movies that he did. And he apparently is a really, really great swordsman. He pr- might be the best ever swordsman that Hollywood ever like brought out. Right. Uh, but he would always lose because he was always the villain. Yeah. And there was only one time he won a duel on screen in his whole career. And it was when he played Tybalt in Romeo and Juliet. And he got an Oscar nomination for it. Oh, wow. really? Was that just kind of a sort of pity thing because he'd had to lose so many jewels? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> the first Sherlock Holmes film was in 1900 and it was called Sherlock Holmes Baffled. Basically, this guy who's supposedly Sherlock Holmes walks into his drawing room to find that he's been burgled and then he sees the villain and he's about to shoot him and then the villain just disappears. And it was like just a way of showing trick photography at the time. Oh, cool. In the um, Wikipedia thing of what happens in the movie, it says at the very end, at this point, the movie ends abruptly with Holmes looking baffled. Oh. <laughs> Do you think it was only at that point that the audience went, oh, the title, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Good reveal. Yeah. <laughs> um, just one more thing that we used for camouflage in the First World War. Yeah. The French used a horse carcass disguise. Okay. So yes. th- there was a real horse which was dead on the battlefield and they replaced it with I think a papier-mâché one, but possibly something a bit more robust than that. But they made a fake horse carcass, left it on the battlefield, and a man crawled inside under cover of darkness and was able to observe any German troop movements. And he had a telephone wire in there so he could report back. They also used uh, camel dung um, as camouflage. Uh, This was Jasper Maskelyne, who was a magician. And according to his memoirs, which we're not 100% sure we believe, but according to his memoirs, they had to uh, mask a load of tanks which had been painted green because they were going to be used in Europe. But actually, they were being used in Egypt, so they needed to be sand-coloured. And um, in order to make them sand-coloured, they painted them in putrid Worcester sauce, (laughs) flour, and camel dung. Wow. (laughs) Wait, his name was Maskelyne? Yeah. And he had to mask a line of tanks? Wow. Nominative determinism gets everywhere. Gets everywhere. (laughs) We also used to use paper mache heads, didn't we, during trench warfare. So uh, they'd make a whole bunch of paper mache heads. This sounds like possibly the most fun part of what wasn't a very fun thing to do, which was fight in the trenches. And then you just like stick the paper mache heads up above the parapet and hope that they all got shot. And then ah. you would see where the snipers were firing from. Is that the idea, or yeah. where their guns were? Yeah, basically. or you just—it would just be like misdirection. It would just be like they'll think now that they've defeated us because they've just shot all our heads off. Um, I, I was reading during World War Two uh, as part of ways of disguising. Um, 
one of the big problems, obviously, German U-boats, they didn't know when they were going to come up. And if a a U-boat saw a battleship, they'd be inclined not to come up because they know the battleship had the capability to just mow them down. So uh, what they used to do was they used to disguise their battleships as cruisers, as public member oh, yeah, cruisers they that, and they yeah. would all dress up all the soldiers the sailors would dress up as just people who were just on a holiday yes. and guys would dress as girls and they'd be hugging on the on the <laughs> so the u-boat would see them come up come towards them and suddenly all the guns would come out and then they would take down the u-boat so once they had seen a u-boat as in they were trying to lure it a bit closer they had a whole rigmarole of what to do so they would start running around the deck as like panicked civilians basically <laughs> yes. and some of them would fall over and some of them would jump into a lifeboat and then leave someone behind by mistake and he would be screaming at the road saying, come back, come back. <laughs> like, all the sailors who wanted to be an Amdram but had nev- didn't have the chance because they were at sea yeah. would have applied for this particular mission. Yeah. <laughs> um, and What's my motivation worked? for this sinking? I just want to know. <laughs> it apparently worked. Apparently 14 U-boats uh, were sunk as a result of this, uh, amazing. this ploy. Do you know that some U-boats uh, came fitted with planes? <laughs> So there were genuinely U-boats which um, had little aircraft hangers on top of them, which could be sealed, obviously. But when they surfaced, um, they, had, they would open the hangar and send up a little plane. Like Thunderbirds. Yeah, and it would observe the sea all around, because obviously it's really good for observation. Oh. And then um, it would land, ideally near the submarine, because they'd have to sort of tug it back in and then put it in the hangar. So it lands on skis or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, it. it can land on water. and then you, yeah. How cool is yeah, that? Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I love those things. Um, I got one last thing before we move on. Basil Rathbone didn't actually like playing Sherlock Holmes. Um, no. It became the bane of his life because everyone just, it was total typecasting. Everyone wanted him to be Sherlock oh, Holmes. A bit like Conan Doyle, how he wanted to. Exactly, exactly like, like Conan Doyle. And he even talked about it saying Conan Doyle killed him off, but I can't, you know. And oh, yeah. um, at the end of his career, though, he said to his wife, why don't you write a Sherlock Holmes play, and she did, and it closed after three nights, because uh, oh. apparently it wasn't that good. But if you look at his IMDb, among his last movies ever made uh, are two that I really like, called Hillbillies in a Haunted House and The Ghost in the Invisible Bikini. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay, time for our final fact of the show, and that is James Harkin. My fact this week is that Abraham Lincoln used his stovepipe hat to keep important documents hidden. Was this before the invention of the briefcase? I imagine it was. I don't know. When was the briefcase invented? Yeah, no I don't idea. know, but why was he using his hat? That feels like they would fall out. Do you know how it works? Um, yeah, I think there was, it was in the lining. I think he had a little pocket in there that he'd be able to keep things in. So these were his top hats? Yeah, the top hat thing that he's really famous for wearing. Yeah. It seemed like he used the top hat as a bit of a gimmick because he was six foot four anyway. And this top hat would give him an extra like seven, eight inches. <laughs> so he would be by far and away the tallest person in any room. Yeah. Um, and also it was always slightly shabby which apparently was supposed to like uh, suit his frontier image. Uh, right. And there was a story that um, he was shot um, by someone and it hit his hat and it knocked his hat off, but he survived. And everyone thought, oh, well, the hat saved his life. But actually what it meant was that he was always much easier to spot because he had a big hat and it was easier for people to see him if they wanted to shoot him they'll just aim for the oh, hat right and yeah and he because this was the year before he was actually assassinated he was riding on his horse um his hat just gets knocked off the horse goes insane rides off one of his people go back to find the hat and they find this big you know gun hole through it mm. and he he didn't believe that it was someone trying to kill him 
He just thought it was a mistake. Was yeah, he thought it was a mistake. He thought someone had let off a gun in a distance, shooting, attempting to shoot some wild animals. A wild hat. A wild hat, <laughs> yeah. yeah. The day that he was assassinated, he there was found on his desk the documents which uh, proposed to put the Secret Service into being, which proposed to make the Secret Service be uh. a thing. And the Secret Service, obviously now, the purpose of the Secret Service is to protect the president and to try and save his yeah. life and stop him wow. from being assassinated. Well, so he started it? Or? He started the Secret Service, yeah. Actually, weirdly, at the time, the Secret Service was to solve a fraud and you know money laundering oh, so cases wasn't, and stuff like that. Because you, you can imagine the day after, they're going, okay, bad first day. Um... <laughs> Um, the man who shot Lincoln was right. John Wilkes Booth, but the man who shot him was a guy called Boston Corbett. Have you heard of him? Yeah. He was no. the most strange and interesting <laughs> person. He was a hatter, and he was genuinely a mad hatter. Um, Did he, he? Was the reason that he shot him because he had shot at the wearer of one of his precious hats? It feels like it's some kind of hat-related vengeance. It does, doesn't it? I don't think it was. Um, he had previously castrated himself with a pair of scissors. Oh, were they um, samurai scissors? <laughs> history, I hope so for his sake. But um, yeah, and he then went for a walk before going to hospital to think about what he'd just done. Um, so just let's go to the assassination scene for a second. John Wilkes Booth, you're mentioning. Yep. Um, so an interesting connection is that Tony Blair's wife, Cherie Blair, was yeah. originally Cherie Booth. Yeah. yeah. She is directly related to John Wilkes Booth. Really? Yeah, she's a she's a fourth removed cousin, I believe. Um, and so she has a connection there. More interestingly, I think, for the purpose of this podcast, on the night that Abraham Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth, another person was injured in the commotion that followed. And it was a guy called Major Henry Rathbone, who yeah. is related directly to Basil Rathbone. Wow, oh, really? Yeah. And he That's later cool. died of the wounds that he suffered from that night from a stabbing uh, God. And that was Basil Rathbone's distant relative. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yeah. the other thing is, you know the um, assassination of JFK, the grassy knoll? Yeah. yeah. That was Basil Rathbone dressed as a grassy knoll. <laughs> <laughs> and on the night he was assassinated, Lincoln had been drinking tomato juice because <laughs> he was very high up in the theater and at that altitude... Tomato tastes juice better. tastes better. <laughs> well, he was six foot four, so he probably did taste better. Right there. <laughs> there were some hats in the Georgian period, I think. This is according to Lucy Worsley, who's just um, written a, a book about that period, um, that were never intended to be worn on the head. Uh, they look like... <laughs> I think that kind of disqualifies him from being a hat. <laughs> <laughs> they were referred to as hats. They were bi those bicorn hats, which are like the... They've got lot too long, pointy sides. They're hats that sailors wear. They were made to be held under the arm on formal <laughs> occasions. They were impossible to no wear way. on the head. Um, there were other types of bike hat that were designed to be collapsible in the 19th century, which I quite like. And there was one hat design which was called the opera hat, which was collapsible so that when you went to the opera, you wouldn't mm. be obscuring people's ah. vision. So that was when there were, there were big top hats and they were spring-loaded so that you could just collapse them <laughs> and then you'd sit on them. You'd sit on this flat, collapsed hat on your opera spring chair. Spring-loaded? Spring-loaded. They're very that. dangerous. Yeah. What if the spring went off while you were sitting on it? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's like bouncing around <laughs> <laughs> Jack in a box. My date's just been lobbed over the balcony. <laughs> President Mobutu of Zaire uh, banned all leopard prince hats from his country, except for his own. Oh, so it wasn't uh, on animal rights grounds. No, he was the only one allowed to wear it. And he also made a law saying that television in Zaire could not mention anybody but him by name. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? That must have made a lot of 
drama's very <laughs> difficult. Or the weakest link. So, who do you think is the weakest link? I think it was that guy. <laughs> Which guy? That guy. <laughs> or university challenge. <laughs> um, second along on the top deck. <laughs> That is unbelievable. Yeah. How long was that? Uh, he, when did he die? He must have died about ten years ago. How would he be introduced to people? <laughs> no, Mabuto, he, this is um, <laughs> this is a guy on television. It's only on TV, right? Oh, only on TV. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't the law in the whole country. <laughs> we better call our next child Mabuto as well. <laughs> what should we call this asteroid? Name <laughs> <laughs> it after my mistress, Mabuto. <laughs> <laughs> Just other uh, famous hats. I really like John Wayne's hat. Oh, yeah. He had a Stetson. Yeah. Wore it all the time. Everyone thought it was to cultivate this constant image of, of a Wild cowboy, Western yeah. kind of cowboy. Um, loved his hat so much, not wanting to take it off, that he actually had his car, which was a Pontiac station wagon, he had the roof raised so that he could fit his Stetson in when he's sitting. <laughs> and they still have that car. I saw an image of it. It wow. looks really cool. So, I went yeah. to the hat museum in Stockport. And they reckon that one of the reasons that hats went out of fashion is because of the motor car, because you couldn't wear it inside the car because uh, the, yeah. the roof was too low. Oh, okay. yeah. um, but when they went out of fashion, uh, no one could really believe it. Uh, newspaper reports of 1948 like bemoaned the fact that there was a new fashion of bareheadedness. And the um, hat industry did some research, and they found that 84% of women preferred men in hats. <laughs> so they? they couldn't believe that people had stopped wearing them because they were so attractive. Yeah. I think they still... I, I'd like to see a poll of women now, what they think of men wearing hats. I reckon still most women would say they prefer men wearing hats. We kind of fetishise that Mr. Darcy top hat look, don't we? Uh, yeah, but only Not like in a backwards the, cap. In the I context mean, of being in 1814 or whatever it was. Do you think if someone actually walked into the bar wearing a Mr. Darcy hat, you think, I, I think actually, you'd think, yeah. I'm it's not very, so into this as I thought. It's very hard to wear any hat other than a beanie hat or a baseball cap, baseball uh, cap. non-ironically, without it seeming like you're trying to dress up like you're in the 40s. I'm not days. sure you could get away with a baseball cap. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. You're absolutely right. Um... Babe Ruth always kept a cabbage leaf in his hat, to, underneath his cap to keep him cool. Uh, and there was a South Korean uh, baseballer called Park Myung Kwan, uh, who also kept frozen cabbage leaves under his cap to keep him cold. Um, but he wasn't really supposed to. There wasn't really a rule, but it was kind of seen as not very good because it was... <laughs> Performance-enhancing cabbage. Yes, exactly <laughs> that. Exactly that. After leaves fell out twice live on television... Um, they came up with a new rule, and now players may only wear cabbage leaves by presenting a doctor's note in advance. And and which doctor are you going to? Which serious <laughs> yeah. doctor is going to sign something to that effect? <laughs> <laughs> only doctors who are in the pocket of big cabbage will do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's it. That's all of our facts. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to get in contact with any of us about the things we've said over the course of this podcast, we're all on Twitter. I can be gotten on. At Schreiberland, James. I can be gotten on at Eggshaped. Andy. You can got me on at Andrew Hunter M. Ada. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep. And uh, if you go to no such thing as a fish.com, we've got all of our previous 55 episodes up there for you to listen to. Also, you can go to qi.com slash fishmail. You can sign up to our newsletter. We're going to be back again next week with another episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>